Proverbs. Let's try one that we all know, but it's not from the Bible. Sticks and stones may... But... Yeah. You think that's true? <laughs> we know it's not, but somehow we all know the proverb. Can you think of someone who hurt you without sticks and stones? And how long back in your memory is that person's face or those words? And that's just, I'm asking for one person. No, uh, not all Proverbs are really true and fit for the Bible, but today, we're going to be talking about words, and whether it's words that come out of our mouths or words that are typed with our fingers or even a picture that another proverb says is worth a thousand words. Here's another proverb you've heard, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now. I think that's a true human proverb that speaks to the immense power of words to inform, to influence, and to produce change. And that shouldn't surprise us because the immense power of words is clearly seen in Scripture in the opening chapters, right? All you have to do is open up the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and God's words, his words actually create the universe. God said, let there be. And when he creates humanity, Adam and Eve, in his image, they end up speaking. <laughs> and so do we, and so am I this morning. But you only have to go a page or two to Genesis 3 to find another being speaking, the serpent, and his words, instead of being creative, could we say are decreative. So Satan tries to disrupt and mess up the original order that God set in his perfect universe. And he wants to displace it and replace it with a reality of his own, which is, is really disorder. And of course, it's not just Satan. He wanted to influence. He's like a missionary there in Genesis 3, right? He's trying to win over the first humans to his side, and he's very successful in doing it. And ever since Genesis 3 and the fall into sin, humans have been using words to destroy and hurt and decreate God's order. And here's the book of Proverbs then, where God gives us his wisdom about words. Now, here, Jared didn't read two of them, but the book of Proverbs is filled with Proverbs about words. Chapter 25, verse 11, one of my favorites says in the ESV, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. 
Or chapter 18, verse 21, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That is, if you love what you say, you will use it wisely or not. And so Solomon in the book of Proverbs, as we've seen, uses life and wisdom, getting back to God's created order, and folly or death, everything that is against God's created order, to describe the two ways that we can live and for us today, the two ways that we can talk. Now think about that. That's pretty easy. When you think about the Bible and life and God, it's not like we have as many choices as you might when you go to a coffee shop. There's only two. There is wisdom and folly. There's life and death. And that started back in Genesis 3. It was the tree of life that was offered, but there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, remember, he talks about a narrow gate and a narrow way that leads to life, and a wide gate and a large highway that leads to death, only two. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, You've only got two destinations. You have the New Jerusalem, where all of God's people will be forever and ever with God, and you have the lake of fire. Two, and only two. So today, I'd like us to see what Proverbs does as it urges us to pursue life and wisdom in the way we speak. And you know this, but your words can bring life. Maybe you experienced that coming in here where somebody just maybe smiled and said, hi. That does something to you, right? But it's, it's not just a quick hi. It might be actual conversations that produce encouragement or give hope when you need it or create joy or help you be more creative as they tap into ideas that you never even thought of before. Maybe words of other people build trust and fuel friendship. And there are some words that even deepen romance. On the other hand, we all know it, words can hurt. They can bring death, pain, condemnation, fear, rejection. Words can fuel arguments and feed thoughts from divorce to even physical harm. The power of words can be deadly even in literal death. That's why James, the New Testament writer, says the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by 
hell. So make, make no mistake, what we're talking about this morning is not, oh yeah, I just need to clean up my words a little bit. No, every time we speak something, we're either voicing something from the throne of God and the tree of life or from Satan and death. And the reason, I think, that words have such power is because language is performative. That that means words don't simply describe, but they perform an action. Now, in the field of linguistics, this is called speech-act theory. So if you, some of you, want to pursue this, it's, it's quite a fascinating study of what one word or word in a phrase or a sentence can do. They're not just sitting there. They do something. They make a difference. And uh, I read a little book this week called Taming the Tongue. The author, Jeff Robinson, says, it's been estimated that the average human being utters between, well, maybe I should ask you to guess, how many words a day do you think come out of your mouth? (laughs) Yeah, a lot, right. Between 10 to 20 thousand words per day. Words, words that make up phrases and sentences and paragraphs and conversations. Each one is an opportunity either to help, to encourage and heal with wise words, or to harm and hurt and damage with foolish words. That's why Robinson says in this book, you've never spoken a neutral word in your life. Now, of course, speaking, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is not just with our mouth, our tongue, but it includes your thumb, whether that's on Instagram, Facebook, social media, emails, whatever, okay? So now let's see how Proverbs points out both the benefits and the dangers of our words. You ready? What I'd like to do is to uh, have you look at that sheet you got. Anyone not have one of those little sheets? Just put your hand up. There's a few hands I see. Pastor Jin is running to the back, and now he's running back in with some right up here. Okay, and just put your hand up you'll see a few folks around. I've chosen three healing ways that we can speak and three harmful ways that we can speak. And the verses on that sheet are in the chronological order of the book, not in the order of the way I'm going to present it in my sermon today. So, first of all, let's talk about the three ways that words can bring life. They can be a medicine of healing. The first word about words is that they are truthful. Truthful. See Proverbs 14.25? You see it on the list there? A truthful witness saves lives, but a false witness is deceitful. Now, this may seem 
like really obvious. Well, of course you want to speak truth, right? Well, yes, but the reason I'm starting with this is because we, we as Christians need to hear this. You see, truth is an attribute of God. It's not something that we manufacture and create. God is always reliable. He matches reality. That's what truth and truthfulness is, or faithfulness. You can depend on God. And when he creates humanity in his image, we were born with that as a default, but now that we are in sin and corrupted, it's not our default. But it should be. And, and what this means is, all through the book of Proverbs, all through the Bible, in fact, it's part of the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> Do not bear false witness. Number nine, I think it is. He wants his people to reflect his image in the way they think, speak, live, and conduct their whole lives. Now, I've got to say, telling the truth doesn't mean telling all the truth, right? So, somebody sees you this morning, hey, how are you doing? Uh, Can we sit down for a moment? No, they're just wondering, are you doing okay today? Nice to see you. I mean, that's not really a good illustration because we all kind of fake it, right? When, yeah, I'm doing okay. When really we may be bubbling over with tension or physical issues, right? But, but seriously, it doesn't, when you tell the truth, it doesn't mean you have to tell all the truth. Neither does it mean that you have to tell the truth to someone who doesn't deserve to know the truth. Now, I'm parsing this kind of finely here, but remember when Jesus was being interrogated before his crucifixion, he was asked some questions that he did not answer. Why? Because that government official did not deserve to know the truth. So, for instance, if somebody asks me, oh, how are so-and-so doing? I I heard their marriage is falling apart. I'm not obliged to say, well, okay, I'm supposed to tell the truth, right? Because there's such a thing as confidentiality. But by and large, we should be honest, open, above board in everything that we say. And boy, our world is in need of this. I mean, just the little phrase, fake news, is enough to set us off, right? And Christians, we can shine today by simply being truth-tellers in everything that we say. Number two, Proverbs talks about gentleness. Gentleness. And the verses I chose are chapter 17, 27, and 28. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought-wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Restraint. 
someone said to me this week, yeah, think with your head, not with your mouth. Yeah. Again, this, this seems like common sense, right? We don't need to talk so much. And if you're, and I'm talking to myself here too, right, because I'm a talker. I do this for a living. <laughs> uh, but if you're listening to somebody else only to find a pause in which to inject your opinion, you've become self-centered and a fool because you're not holding it back and thinking of the other person. James once again says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And someone has said, hey, you've got two ears and one mouth. <laughs> Learn from that. And how often I'm tempted, and my wife has had to tutor me on this, that when somebody says something to me, like, my sister has been diagnosed with cancer, my first response is to say something like, oh, I had a brother who had cancer. And when she pointed that out to me, I said, oh, I do that? I say that? Yeah, I wasn't really thinking about it, but that's that self-centeredness that just bubbles out that wants to take over the conversation. It doesn't mean you should never talk about yourself, but when people share things, they want to be heard. which means sometimes we just have to zip it. It's impossible to sin with your mouth if it's closed. Okay. All right. Those are three ways that we can bring life. Little ways, but big ways. Now, three ways that we can hurt and harm and bring death to people. The first one, if I can kind of match it to truth, is lying, lies. And the verses are 26, 18, and 19. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Lying is telling something untrue. That's pretty obvious, right? We just talked about truth-telling. But lying is also telling something that's true with the intent to deceive. Proverbs even says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and the second one is a lying tongue. It's very serious. Now, I'm going to give you three examples. Lying is the first. And I asked Shep if I could use him as an example in these three. The reason I did that is a few weeks ago when I preached, I used Jin as an example of me being jealous of him playing the guitar, if you remember that, and leading worship. 
Okay. So now it's Shep's turn. Okay. And I have his permission. Even if he didn't say yes, I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> All right. So let's say I had a lunch on a Friday that I'm having with someone in our church. And I know that this person's job is very demanding, and he's just worked me in for a Friday lunch for an hour. I say something like this. Oh, Shep takes Fridays off. And of course, I don't because I'm out to eat lunch with you. Now, <laughs> that's true, I think, right? Friday's your day off. What I don't tell him is that I take Mondays off, usually. So I told a truth looking to make Shep look bad and me look better, like I'm the, I'm, I'm the worker around here and Shep's the lazy guy. How, now this is all made up, okay? This is made up. But lying, it, it can be so, oh, you, you, get the, you get the point. All right, let's move on to a second one. Gossip. Chapter 18, verse 8. <clears throat> the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Mm, yum. They taste so good. What is gossip? You know, think about that. Gossip is sharing damaging information with the intent to shame that person and build yourself up. Or you could say it's sharing private information with someone else who's not part of the problem or part of the solution. But it makes both of you, the teller and the hearer, feel important because you're in the know. Isn't that insidious? I mean, gossip? So let's say I'm talking to Pastor Jin, and I say to him, you know, Jin, <clears throat> some people I hear don't come to church when they know that Shep is preaching. <laughs> now, what have I just done, you see? It may be true, it may not be true. I don't know, I'm sure that's true with me. But, but the point is, when I say that about someone else, I've done it with a hook. It's not a fact. It's got a, it's got a personal, I call it a hook, because I'm using that to bolster, Jen, everybody comes for you and me. Right? So just, just like in, in lying, the hook was, I work on Fridays. Shep takes Fridays off. See how, be how much better I am? So in gossip, it, it's a similar selfishness, but it takes information meant to damage, even if it's true. And Christians are great on this, especially when we baptize it in prayer language. Be really careful about that. If it's confidential, it's confidential. 
Here's a third and final way. Flattery. Proverbs 29.5, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Flattering. Make someone else feel affirmed so that you can receive something from them. You see that hook again? It's designed to put the flattered person in your debt. Now, it differs from a compliment that has no hook in it, no, no selfish intent. Now, you know where I'm. Maybe you're already thinking about an illustration about Shep. So here's, here's one that I made up. Shep, if I say to him, Shep, you do really well when you visit people in the hospital. Now, can you see that? Can you see the hook? So-and-so is in the hospital. And what I wouldn't say is, and I don't want to go visit them. <laughs> you do it, because you do it so much better. Aren't we devious? These illustrations came, came out of my mind. Ooh, yeah. And I might say, isn't this discouraging? Well. It's worse than you think. It's worse. Why? Because our words are simply an outward expression of what's inside our hearts. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, and it's a proverbial. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the answer today is not on your way out, we're providing duct tape, <laughs> free. Take it and use it. <laughs> use it freely on others. No, that, that would be funny, duct tape Sunday. No, the answer is not to, because it's still in the heart, right? Jesus the incarnate Word of God empowers us to speak with life-giving wisdom. The answer is not just craft your words a bit better, but start by having surgery on your heart. Now listen to John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus? Because there's something about performative speaking, and that's what Jesus is. Jesus speaks with power. And so in John 5, 24, he said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my Word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. This is where it starts. And if you're here today, this is not a sermon on just being a better person, just talking 
more politely. It is about our words, yes, but underneath our words are our hearts, and only God can give us new hearts, and maybe God needs to give you a new heart today. Not by you trying harder, but by you trusting in Jesus who came to give you forgiveness of your sins and eternal life because he died and rose for you. And so we go to Jesus to find that life now and forever through his words. And that's why Paul in the New Testament, when he he talks about how Christians should speak, here's two verses. Notice the word grace in it, which is the divine enablement to obey God. Listen, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So, Proverbs, Paul reminds us that it's so important the way we speak, which means it's so important to have a heart right with God. But as we all know, you know it, I know it, we speak hurtful words, foolish words, damaging words, and we follow Satan's path. The tongue is set on fire of hell. And when we use words wisely, we're restoring. And I've been married quite a while. Uh, Right now, I'm trying to do the calculation, and under the pressure of the moment, I'm simply going to say at least 40 years. I think, no. <laughs> but, but the point is, I've lived with my wife for a long time, and she knows me inside out and vice versa. And the way we live is by communicating, not with hand signals, <laughs> with words. And it seems like I cannot get it through my thick head when I try to say something and my wife will react a certain way, and then it just sets me off defending myself, explaining myself, and after some time, repenting, asking for forgiveness, using words. See the double-edged sword, the double power? The words hurt, but she wants to hear the words that heal. It's not just enough for me to shake my head and say, I got it. (laughs) Or to say, don't worry about it. What? (gasps) No. My words that hurt her change into words that try to heal. That's a constant struggle for me. And 
that's what our lives are like with Jesus too because it says in the book of first John if we confess our sins what is confession its words if we verbally confess our sins God will forgive our sins see the link there with words our hurtful words can be healing words when confession and repentance cleanses our hearts. May it be so in all of us. And I've talked about Jesus, and now we get to remember Jesus. Do you have your elements for the Lord's Supper? If you would take those and hold them for a moment. As I got to thinking about this, I thought, you know, There are powerful words connected with this simple ritual. And they come in threes. That's not a magical number or something. But think about this. And they mark Jesus' death, resurrection, and coming again. Jesus said, I must be crucified. He said that numbers of time, numerous times in the Gospels, right? I must die. And Scripture says later, like John 19, they crucified him. Jesus also said, I will rise. And you know what we say on Easter Sunday, right? He is risen. And Jesus said, I will come, come again. And in 1 Corinthians 16, the early church prayed, Oh, Lord, come. Aren't they simple words? One syllable. But three words packed with meaning, performance. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again for us. Jesus will come again for us to make all things new. And there's three more words that he said. Take, eat, and drink. And that's what we're doing today. So if you're a Christian and you've gathered here, you don't have to be a member of our church. You have to be a member of Jesus' church his family, then I invite you to uh, peel away that top part where the little cracker is in there. And I remind you that Jesus himself said that this bread is his body which is given for us. And as often as we eat it, we think about him, we remember him. So I'm going to give us a moment or so of quiet prayer and ask you what words, words in your heart can you say back to Jesus as his word, words come to you at this time. And after the quiet, I'll pray and we'll eat together. Our God, we thank you that in the quietness 
that our ears hear, your ears hear our words that come from our hearts. We thank you for Jesus who came to die for our sins, to be buried, to be raised again. Thank you that in his death we have life. Thank you that his broken body is what we can remember. Give us your grace as we eat. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat together. And the cup, of course, if you're a Christian, you know this represents the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. We sang about it this morning. How ironic that a symbol of death is what we drink as a symbol of life. So let's take another moment and thank God and speak to him in words in your heart. Our Father, thank you again for the cross, that Roman instrument of death that brings us life. Thank you for the blood of the new covenant that was poured out and that now we have new hearts with new desires. Fuel us by your Spirit so that our lips will reflect your love, your grace. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's peel the top part back and drink together. Our God, we thank you that as your people, not only can we pray together and hear your word together, but we can sing together. And so now, loose our tongues to sing words from our hearts with joy. In the name of our Savior, we pray, amen.